Psalm 63, we'll just read verse 1 together. Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. For a little bit this evening, I want to minister on this thought with the help of the Lord. Nothing else matters. God bless you. you may be seated. Thank you for standing for the reading of the word. This past Sunday, we celebrated and honored all of our graduates and thankful for the message that Brother Caleb Saucer preached uh, to them and to us all with the end in mind. But it was a statement that he made in his first conclusion and then in his final conclusion that has stuck with me since Sunday, them before me, him before all, especially the last part of that phrase, him before all. Maybe it's just because I've been slowly reading through the Psalms as part of my personal reading this year, and Psalm 63 has especially grabbed my attention over the past few weeks, percolating in my mind, reading and rereading, and uh, kind of slowed my progress, and not necessarily like that, but when you're slow reading, you're slow reading. Um, but I think that Psalm 63 conveys what Brother Saucer was communicating Sunday, and that it aligns well with what Pastor John's has taught the past two Wednesdays, that our love for Jesus Christ is the preeminent and must be the preeminent pursuit of our lives. That, and, and, and when that is true, when this preeminent pursuit of Jesus Christ is the anthem of our life, it becomes an undeniable and irresistible witness to those that are around us, to our family, to other believers, and to ourselves. And when nothing else matters, when nothing but being in his presence matters, when nothing but pleasing God and him alone matters, there and there alone do we discover what it is to live a life of meaning and mission and position ourselves in a place where there is divine protection and there is divine provision where nothing else matters. We see the power of singular focus illustrated in many arenas of human existence in our life, especially in athletes and even more specifically those who, regardless of the sport, if you're having the greatest of all time conversation, these uh, people will be a part of that conversation. So consider Michael Jordan. Hopefully you just didn't gear up for a fierce argument. We'll stay out of that. But consider Mr. Jordan. MJ certainly had extraordinary physical and athletic abilities, but he is not necessarily remembered just for his physical metrics. But what Michael Jordan is renowned for is an unrelenting will to win at all costs. He would drag his team on his shoulders. He would play through the flu. He would battle through even deep depression, but he was driven by an insatiable will to win and nothing else mattered but winning. He trained harder than his competitors and was renowned for that. And he refused 
to lose. That was Michael Jordan. Consider Tiger Woods, who professed a desire to be a professional golfer at the age of nine, and because nothing else mattered to him, he practiced on average three to four times longer than most competitors, 12 and 13 hours a day, and he testifies of hitting thousands of golf balls a day with bloody hands and aching back because he was driven not just to play, but to win at all costs. Consider Michael Phelps, who won 28 medals in swimming and 23 golds over five Summer Olympics spanning two decades because nothing else mattered to him but winning. He trained with relentless focus or even a rigid, solidary focus in the words of his coach twice a day, five to six hours a day, six days a week, Christmas, birthday, holidays, swimming almost 50 miles a week. Because nothing else mattered, Mr. Phelps willingly surrendered his social life for a regimented sleep schedule and a precise diet of eight to 10,000 calories a day. That sounds pretty good, actually. And, and get away with it. And yet the Apostle Paul, who liked athletic illustrations, if you're frustrated with me right now, wrote, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9 and 25, all athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. But we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing. I, I'm not just here to live and breathe and survive. I have a purpose and nothing else matters. Amen. Paul is saying, in other words, if the great champions of sports are willing to do whatever it takes to win a temporal prize, how much more should you and I as Christians, apostolic, born-again, spirit-filled believers be utterly consumed by a preeminent passion for Jesus Christ and a preeminent pursuit of an eternal crown of righteousness that is found in Christ and Christ alone. And Paul's declaration is not just the anomaly of a wild hair crazy hero of the Bible. It is the witness of all of Scripture. Nothing else matters. This truth is, in, the, in fact, the foundational framework of the Old Testament. You may have heard this before in Deuteronomy 6 and 4. Moses, on behalf of God, taught Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. That seems pretty conclusive in itself. And upon that truth is built the entire Old Testament. David echoed this preeminent love and desire for the only living God in Psalms 27 when he wrote, One thing have I desired of the Lord, 
and that will I seek. Just, just one thing have I desired of the Lord, but that one thing is pre the preeminent pursuit of my life, and I'm seeking it, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That is the pursuit of Jesus Christ. Jesus then established that truth as not only the foundational framework of the Old Testament, but now, in fact, the foundational framework of the New Testament, his new kingdom, and the covenant that you and I are a part of. Jesus answered an inquiry from a, a, a lawyer or a, a religious scholar who asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. This is the first commandment. Jesus continued to unpack this truth in Luke 9 when he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. You must take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. That's win-win, ladies and gentlemen. And what you, and, and this is the question Jesus poses. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? Nothing else matters. Your net worth really doesn't matter in the end. Uh, that your kid is the star of travel ball and gets a free ride to college. In the end, if they are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, what did it really matter? If you get all of the accolades of culture with your paintings and your piercings and your attire, at the end of the day, if culture affirms you and accepts you and says you're beautiful, what does it matter if at the end you have lost what matters most? Jesus described this consuming love and unrelenting relenting commitment even further in Luke a few chapters later, Luke 14 and 26. If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, otherwise you cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not giving you permission to hate, but by comparison that he is the preeminent pursuit of our life and nothing else matters but him. He continued to say, and if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Finally, the Apostle Paul testified to the Philippian Christians about the singular focus of his life. 
and ministry, and this was his testimony. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. In verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or the other, on the mountaintop of victory or walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, Paul wrote, but I press on to possess that perfection which Christ Jesus has possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, he would say, I've not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. You, whoever you think I am as the Apostle Paul, whatever accolades you would throw my way, whatever bouquets you would want to give me, whatever honors you would want to express, just know this, that above all else, there is a preeminent focus in my life and nothing else matters. And this is it, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the prize, the end of the race, and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. What is Paul saying? I think he's trying to say nothing else matters but Jesus Christ and him alone. But when nothing else matters, everything else aligns with God's purpose, God's power, and God's provision. And this divine desire becomes an inexhaustible fuel of uncontainable worship and uncontainable witness in our world, in our families, and in our home. When nothing else matters, and when Jesus Christ is the preeminent pursuit of our life, when we love him above all, and, 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 he, and, 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 and compared to anything else, it is as garbage, it is as rubbish. When we are seeking him above all else, that becomes a fuel, that becomes an ignition of worship and praise and adoration and commitment and devotion that he alone is worthy and he's worthy of it all. And out of that becomes a testimony that is irresistible and undeniable that whatever it is that marks their life and whatever it is that is happening in them and through them, I want what they have. It is a cohesive duet where we have our profession and our practice becoming this persuasive testimony that there is a living God and we can know him and we can be known by him and it is an irresistible testimony to our friends and our family and unbelievers and our own self when we look in the mirror and are struggling with our faith. And all of that leads us back to Psalm 63, 
which I believe encapsulates this story of Scripture that nothing else matters. David wrote this. It was our text. Oh, God, you are my God. You're not a God. You're not one of the gods. You are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Imagine being on a tour of the Mojave Desert in California. You're in a cool Jeep. It's yellow. The top's down. You're just kind of racing through the dunes, airborne a few times, but you keep it together. But all of a sudden, maybe it's a jagged rock. Maybe it's a mature cactus. Something goes wrong. The tire blows. The Jeep rolls. The water splashes. The motor's dead. The amateur radio is, is broken. Your cell phone battery is dead. And you are in the middle of the Mojave Desert. No water, no food, no phone, no radio, no shelter. Suddenly, nothing else matters but water and survival. Your upcoming doctor's appointment is not bothering you. Your net worth is not a weight or a worry. Your appearance and body shape does not matter in this moment. Your planned vacation to the Bahamas is not in your mind. Your golf handicap doesn't matter. The brave standing in the NL East doesn't matter. Who's running for president is not your concern. You could care less about the latest political and social scandal. Suddenly, you have laser focus on one thing alone, water. And that is the piercing metaphor that David poetically uses to illustrate what it is to have an all-consuming desire for God, a longing to be in his presence where nothing else matters but him. Verse 2, David continues, So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. He's rehearsing being in the sanctuary of the mighty God. He's remembering and recalling what it was to stand in the awesome wonder and the omnipotent power of his holy presence. Kind of like you would be rehearsing what it was to drink that plastic bottle of spring water straight from the city well and how refreshing that it felt as it went down your throat and, and, and you'd be remembering that experience. This is what David is trying to say. I remember as I'm here it, it, metaphorically in this desert, metaphorically I'm in a difficult hour, metaphorically I'm in the fight and battle of my life, metaphorically I feel alone and abandoned, but I remember how my soul longs for God. My spirit is seeking after him. I remember what it's like to feel the Shekinah glory flood around me. I remember what it's like to stand in a holy awe of a glorious God and feel his tangible presence it is it is in verse 3 he says because your loving kindness is better than life my lips 
shall praise you. To David, God's generous, unfailing love superseded mere human existence, but it ignited a reasonable response to be a living sacrifice of praise and worship and service to him. David says, in light of you, in light of your amazing love, that while I was yet a sinner, you would die for me, that you would march up Calvary's hill, and that you alone would reconcile me to God. When I think about your loving kindness, David says, my lips will praise you. I can't contain it. I can't disguise it. It doesn't matter where I'm at. It is the preeminent pursuit of my life and it just it just flows from me and it and it just is a light exploding from my life I will praise you verse 4 David says thus I will bless you while I live one translation says, every time I breathe, I will bless you. I will lift up my hands in your name. You want to know why we lift up our hands? Because the Bible gives us permission to lift up our hands. It's because nothing else matters. Hey, if I can lift up my hands when Georgia scores a touchdown, if I can lift up my hands with Jubilee, uh, when Acuna, Acuna hits a grand slam or a home run, if I can lift up my hands when my race car driver crosses uh, the checkered line and wins, I can lift up my hands to my God. I can lift up my hands and make a joyful noise. I can clap my hands. I can make a shout of joy. It is because there is nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. So when you can't worship and praise, something else is mattering. Verse 5, my soul shall be satisfied as with morrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. David says, whatever you envision as the most elaborate and expensive feast in the world, Whatever cruise is your highest memory of utmost gluttony. Whatever imaginary feast you can imagine that you would delight in, David says the satisfaction of that cannot compare to the satisfaction of Christ and him alone. And because of that, he says, my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. You remember testimony service back a long time in the ancient days? when I was just young enough to kind of be a part of testimony services, many of them were good, but there was always sister or brother who used that opportunity to seize the pulpit and to declare how tough and rough life really was. David says, come on now, my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. It, it may have been a tough day. The Jeep rolled, the radios crashed. I don't have a canteen, but I have a God. And I know that above all else, nothing matters. He is the source of what I need. Verse 6, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate upon you in the night watches, in one translation says, in hours of grateful reflection. So for everyone who wants to make early will I seek you a doctrine, David says, in the midnight hour I meditate and seek after you as well. What is he saying, I think? 
He is saying 24-7, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365, I am intoxicated with Jesus Christ. Publicly, we cannot help but praise him. And privately, we cannot help but ponder his greatness. So whether I'm gathered together in a corporate place of worship or I'm alone in my bed in the midnight hour meditating on the grandeur of God, it doesn't matter. He is worthy to be praised for his greatness and his goodness. And nothing else matters. Verse 7, David says, because you have been my help, therefore in the shadow of your wings I will rejoice or sing for joy. You see, in his presence, there's not just pleasures forevermore. There's not just joy inexpressible, but there is protection. There is a protection that gives you permission to live life with peace and stress-free. There is a divine covering. David maybe metaphorically has in mind a bird protecting her young, but maybe he's thinking of the imagery of the cherub wings that are hovering over the mercy seat and that are always described as holding up the throne of the Almighty God. When you're in the presence of the Almighty, when you're covered by the shadow of his wings, you are one bad dude, and you are one bad woman on this planet because nothing can touch you. We just sang a song that our God is greater. Isaiah would say, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. All of those scriptures that we love to quote is because they're true. Under the shadow of his wings, you are invincible. There is nothing that can defeat you. There is no weapon. There is no lie. There is no illusion. There is no scandal. There's no power. The Chinese army, the Russian espionage, it, nothing can defeat you. And so David says, in light of all of that, my soul, in verse 8, follows close behind you. I cling to you. I hold on to you for dear life. And, and because why? Your right hand, it upholds me. When I can't carry myself, you will carry me. When I can't take another step, somehow it is you that carries me forward. And so I'm going to cling to you. I'm holding on to God for dear life because nothing else matters. Now David shifts to describing what happens to those that everything else matters. In verse 9, those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of earth, which is a poetic way of saying hell. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. That's a difficult way to die. This reminds us of God's standing promise. We sing about it. When, when you hear David describe those who are attacking him, those who have placed him in this dry and desert place, they have, they have backed him up. They have chased him into the wilderness. The jeeps rolled. He needs water. Life is hanging by a thread. David says, in the end, in the end, I, in the end, 
Those who seek my life to destroy it, they will end up in hell. They will fall by the sword. They will be torn by jackals. As God told Isaiah and mentioned it earlier, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue that rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. David then wraps it up with this beautiful bow and declares that he and all believers can't help but rejoice forevermore. And everyone who resisted God and everyone who rejected God and everyone who let everything else be their pursuit instead of nothing else mattering, they will be muted forevermore. And David declared, but the king shall rejoice in God. And everyone who swears by him shall glory, but the mouth of those who speaks lies shall be stopped. Psalm 63, it is the song of every believer whose life is devoted above all else to the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. It is the song of a life where nothing else matters but being in his presence and pleasing him. It is the song of a life lived with eternal purpose. It is the song of a life lived with the end in mind. But it is not a silent song. It is a song that must be sung in truth and sincerity. It is a song, as David is clear, that ignites within us passionate praise and devoted worship of our God, our great and glorious God. It is a song that positions us in the place of God's inexhaustible provision and his impenetrable protection. This is the song of those that nothing else matters. It is a song that becomes an undeniable and irresistible testimony to the unbeliever to our fellow believers, to the next generation, and to our own selves. It is a testimony that will be affirmed by the witness of the Spirit. Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. And when there is no water, nothing else matters. If you're able, please stand. But Jesus said, if you're thirsty, come unto me. And I, I will give you living water. You'll never thirst again. Nothing else matters. That's our call. That's our challenge. That's been the word of the Lord to us as a congregation over the last several weeks. Just trying to bring it in a different light through a psalm this evening. That Jesus Christ must be the preeminent focus, devotion, commitment, longing, love, passion, and pursuit in our lives. And everything else that would distract us really doesn't matter. 
and everything else, everything else that would seek to occupy our time, attention, affections. It really doesn't matter in the end. The only thing that matters is Christ and Christ alone. The preeminent desire of our lives. So before we live out, leave out to live the anthem of Psalm 63.